Section 31 of Open the Door. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lena Emsley. Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. Book 3, Chapter 5, Part 1. 1. I told you, persevered the voice of Irene's holiday governess, that some seeds and some fruits, too, have wings. Can either of you tell me the name of a tree that has a winged fruit? Come, Carola, you try. The rain might go off if you would stop looking at it. At one end of the long country drawing-room, she sat with her two little girl pupils, filling in the slow half-hour before tea with a nature talk. At the other end, Irene was having an argument with Aunt Georgina, and the murmur of the children at their lessons made a kind of droning counterpoint for the more acrimonious voices of their mother and grandmother. This is just a fad of yours, Irene, declared the elder speaker inclemently, about the children needing sea air in August. I never heard such rubbish. Compared with these hills, the sea's a nasty, bilious place. It was now two years since the widowed Lady Westermuir had left Edinburgh and come to live at the small Perthshire estate from which her husband had taken his judicial title and in this June afternoon, the very same afternoon upon which her niece, Joanna, was speeding south on the first wind of chance, she was seated by a window that looked out upon the Grampians. A mere doctor's fad, she pursued. They would be far better here with me till October. Broadstairs, too, of all places. While her daughter crouched shivering by the fire, the old woman herself had made no further concession to the weather than by having thrust her feet into a deerskin hassock. She sat steely and erect on a straight-backed chair before her desk in the deep window-bow that was her favourite post, and this, though the mountain prospect that she loved was quite gone in mist. Mist, chill, heavy and sopping on this day of summer, had left nothing for the disconsolate eye to rest upon, save a drenched garden terrace, some shrubs weighted with the rain, and a broken regiment of tiger lilies. My dear mother, returned Irene in a tone of martyrdom which her mother guessed was due less to maternal anxiety than to her grievance at having had to leave London in the middle of the season. You surely don't imagine that I like our summer arrangements, but you see for yourself that Carola has had one cold upon another since we came here, and after bronchitis so lately. Look, went on the persistent undertone of the lesson, this is the seed of the ash a single seed in a sheath which is really a wing. It is called a Samara. See the twist that helps it to fly. And this is a sycamore fruit with two wings. Can it really fly, Miss Frew? asked Carola, the elder child, suddenly taking some interest. Like a bird. It can whirl along in the wind for miles and miles. The child doesn't go out enough, announced Carola's grandmother. Suppose it fell on a stone, Miss Frew. Then, if it lived long enough, it would have to wait for another wind to blow it to a place where it could sprout and take root. Would you have her go out on a day like this? Most certainly I should. To hear you, one would hardly think you were a Scotswoman at all. A fine, metallic thread of contempt was one of the strands in the withered old voice. Suppose the wind blew it onto another stone, and another stone... Lots more stones, Miss Frew, or into the sea. I don't hold, Aunt Georgina still spoke, 
with your doctor's fiddle-faddle about bronchitis and sea air and nonsense. However, I see your mind is made up, and after all, they're only my grandchildren, not my children. For one seed that sprouts, millions and millions only rot every year. Do billions and billions rot? asked Phyllis, the younger child, speaking for the first time. I suppose so. And trillions and trillions, Miss Frew. I dislike having the house to myself in the autumn, and most people have made their plans by now. Of course, I might ask one of your cousins, Shalto's girls. It has been in my mind for some time to ask Joanna. Joanna used to be fond of the country, and has no home of her own to go to these days. That is the one thing I will say for your poor Aunt Julie. She brought her children up to be hardy. I remember how they used to run about in all weathers like so many young colts. Yes, I shall tell Joanna to come in August and see her old aunt. 2. At the moment when Aunt Georgina's invitation was being fastened in its envelope, Joanna, a little dazed by her long journey, stood once more by the widely spilled water of Torre del Lago. She stood looking across the white expanse that seven years before had marked the turning of her life from dream to reality. Clearly she now knew that turning for what it was, but part of her inevitable progression towards death. She had lived out the dream, had embraced the reality, and now death was fulfilled in her. She saw that, however different might have been the circumstances of her travelling in it, for her at least there could have been no other progression. Now it might be that death was her portion, or it might be that out of her very recognition and acceptance of death, a new life might spring. It came to her that the world was walked by thousands who were dead, and whose true deathliness lay in their continued assertion of life. Such life, surely, was mere putrefaction, and from putrefaction came no new life worth having. The phoenix could not rise anew but from its acknowledged ashes. Anyhow, she relinquished all claim to the old life. She rested in the void, and was content to bide her time without a single defiant reaching forth. And while Joanna climbed the steep winding path to the cottage, since her last visit there was no change in the hillside, save that now on every hand the cherry trees declared themselves from among the olives by their brighter fruit. Aunt Georgina, in her old age sometimes generous on second thoughts, was reopening her invitation and inserting a cheque. 3. Though the door stood open, Aunt Purdy was not in the cottage, nor was she in the garden. Aurora, however, larger and handsomer than ever, with two babies grabbing at her skirts, was there cutting artichokes, and upon catching sight of the unlooked-for visitor, she uttered a cry of mingled surprise and welcome. But what? Of course she remembered the Signorina Scorsese, but the misfortune, the poor Signora del Monte, it was by this name that Aunt Purdy was known to the district, taken ill suddenly, had only the day before been fetched away by the other Signora, her sister, doubtless also well known to the Signorina, who had at Turin the fine house and a distinguished family. At Turin, for certain, the Signora del Monte would be well cared for. Nor did Aurora expect her return for some weeks. What was to be done? Joanna did nothing and suggested nothing, 
she merely stayed quietly on at the cottage. While she felt no particular relief at her aunt's absence, neither did she feel any disappointment, and Aurora, seeing this, fell in with it unquestioningly. She waited on the niece as she had waited on the aunt, as a matter of course, and Joanna, with her return ticket safe, was able to eke out over some six weeks money that in London would hardly have lasted for one. Between the garden and the orchard, with eggs and an occasional fowl from Aurora, she found food enough, and other needs she had none. Occupation there was for her in plenty. She washed and mended whatever of Aunt Purdy's she could find that needed repair, put the cottage in shining order, weeded and dug in the garden, and between whiles she lay for hours at a time on the garden's highest ridge from where she could gaze upon the wide, sparkling sweep of the sea. Often then she remembered those sea-going ships upon the Clyde that had nearly drawn the childish heart out of her breast, but up till now all her adventures had been inland. Only now was she loosed, if so be the capacity lay in her at all, for the true voyage. But the will to shape circumstances or to force an issue was gone from her. She had become submissive to the uncomprehended current of events. She did not grieve or rejoice. She did not live. She only waited. And when Aunt Georgina's letter reached her, she accepted the invitation. The wind had blown her south. Now the wind was to blow her north. Free as a flying seed, she still was, as is a seed, at the mercy of the winds. When would she be driven to the place where she might strike her roots and at last raise her leaf and her bud? She recalled Mr. Moon's legend of the bird of paradise. It was one thing to die to the world, to devour the sweet spices and so forever lose your foothold. It was another to find a resting place in some new way of life. She could still feel the lake swallows digging into her palms with their frantic claws, but of what use was their escape to them, if escape were all? Was Lawrence too, she wondered, without a foothold in the world? It seemed to her that for a man the whole scheme of things must be different, yet he too, as she could not forget, had conceived of his life as a seed foiled of its consummation. 4. August was nearly over, when one evening she stepped down from the train at a highland junction to be driven ten miles along wet, bog-scented roads to Aunt Georgina's house, which she then saw for the first time. It stood, whitewashed and four-square, on its hill, with no creepers to break its bareness, a typical Perthshire dwelling of the severer sort, set in good, though not showy, grounds. And on its wide semicircular steps, confronting the terrace and the watery sunset, stood its mistress awaiting her guest. Joanna, who first caught sight of the straight, unmistakable figure from a turn in the drive, was surprised by a familiar tremor. Since her mother's funeral, when all family relations were abnormal, she had not seen her aunt, nor had she slept under her roof oftener than twice in the last ten years. And if, in middle age, Lady Westmuir had been a person to strike terror into young bosoms, in old age, she was even more intimidating. True, at that moment, in the yellow light that beat up against her from the wet gravel, turning her widow's cap with its precise goffering into a moulding of pale brass, 
she might, from the waist downward, have stood to a sculptor for the figure of charity. The folds of her skirts, black now instead of prune-coloured, flowed out so generously at either side, ballooning slightly in the air as she advanced. But no caritas ever kept shoulders so erect as these under the brown and scarlet paisley shawl, and the triumphant clash of cymbals would better than any more Christian music have expressed these leonine features. Yet Joanna's fear proved, after all, to be but a ghost of a bygone subjection. Being faced with its object, it passed so wholly that it only served to mark the distance she had travelled, for without doubt she emerged unshaken from the stately embrace, the condescending greeting, and the critical old stare. Two days later, the morning gave promise of sunshine, even of heat, after a spell of rain, and Aunt Georgina decided that she would pay a call upon one of her more distant neighbours, a retired sheriff, whose house lay a few miles from Perth on the further side. As she had not visited there before, a map was produced and laid open on the breakfast table, and that her younger eyes might be made use of, Joanna was seated before it. It was only then that there came to her as a perfect astonishment what she must long before have known, had her childish geography not been of the haziest and never amended. Westmuir lay within twenty miles of Duntarvi. Incredible as it may seem, she had never thought of Duntarvi as having a place upon the map. Deeply shaken, she traced the district with her forefinger. Duntarvi, and close to it upon the printed map, Drumwarry, the farm where Alec Peddy had lived. Before her eyes were the names of villages, streams, and hills, which till now had seemed names in a tale. The cob had gone lame, and Lady Westmuir did not consider the small pony equal to her weight upon the steeper hills. But the fine day was not to be missed, so she would go by train. If her niece really wanted to revisit Duntarvi, why not do so that day? They could travel together as far as Perth. So it was. At Perth, Joanna saw her aunt drive off in a hired carriage, and herself returning to the booking office, she took her ticket to the village from which Duntarvi was but three miles distant. Though she had nearly an hour to wait for her train, she could not leave the magic enclosure of the station. She was filled there, for the first time these many days, with the strangest expectancy, and even apart from this, she found pleasure in the bustling holiday sight. Kilted men with guns swung past her, followed by excited retriever dogs. Anglers in shabby homespuns, carrying their rods and baskets, moved more philosophically. Everywhere trolleys heaped with kit bags and golf clubs blocked the way. Children clutching green butterfly nets hurried before their parents across the big black iron bridge. They were fearful lest they should not find their platform in this widespread network of arrival and departure. How well Joanna remembered that trembling lest the others should lag and keep one back, and so one's heart be broken by the sight of a missed train. Duntarvi, Duntarvi, would the stream still be flowing clear brown, and its furry stones be sheltering the spotted trout? Would the heron still have his nest upon the island in the upper pond? Would the blaeberries be ripe and the larches heavy with their swinging tassels? In the refreshment room, to which she was driven by a slight dizziness, memory was further assailed by a vision of her mother's unslept 
but ardent face of travel. It had always been part of the ritual of the long journey from Glasgow that Julie should take her children here to drink tea, out of these thick white cups that had the thrilling word Perth emblazoned across them upon a blue strap. Having ordered tea, she went to a small table opposite the entrance. Above that was the clock, and even while she raised the cup to her lips, she could hardly take her eyes from the slow, jerking minute hand upon the dial. Only twenty minutes now, and she would be on her way. A traveller came pushing himself in between the swing doors. He wore a sporting suit of loud and gay pattern of tweed, woven perhaps in Scotland, but destined for no Scotsman to wear, and slung from his shoulders was a bulging rucksack. Carl! Carl Nilsson! My dear, dear Carl! Impetuously, Joanna started from her seat and ran toward the newcomer, all the other people in the restaurant looking up to watch the meeting. Strangers will always watch with a good deal of interest what is clearly a chance meeting. On this occasion, one at least of the onlookers, a stout woman of unimaginative appearance enough, was so anxious not to miss a single clue that she could spare no glance for the lump of sugar which she held suspended halfway to her cup. She dropped it with a clatter on the marble tabletop, and even then did not take her eyes from Joanna's face. Indeed, Carl's queer clothes and foreign looks notwithstanding, it seemed to be Joanna rather than he that held the attention of the onlookers. Quite apart from dress and feature, Joanna had lately got that in her presence which put her apart and set people speculating. She looked young, not more, decided the stout observer, than twenty-five, yet she had already discarded that density which is peculiarly the mark of youthful flesh. Had she perhaps just recovered from an illness? That seemed ruled out by the bounding movement of greeting with which she had run forward. Neither was she particularly thin. Yet there was a difference, a rarity, something that marked her out. And how came Carl to be in Perth? And how Joanna? The better to talk, they sat down at her table, and she told him briefly of her doings. It was more than two years since they had met, and Joanna could feel her friend's clever eyes noting the changes in her. In him, except that the last traces of red had vanished from the grey of his beard, she could see no difference. When she seemed to have no more to say, he told her that he was even now on his way to meet Lawrence Urquhart. Lawrence had been ill. She had not heard? Well, he was better now, or nearly so, and together they were going to make what Carl called a footing tour in Fife. Carl had long wished to see the Fife villages, which were said to be like villages in the Low Countries. Lawrence was also to see them now for the first time. Cooper, Falkland, Uchtemuchti, Strathmiglo, such promising names as they had. Did Joanna know any of them? She did? Good. What now of the ancient royal borough of Uchtemuchti? It was there he was going to meet Lawrence that afternoon. Was it a place to be sketched? Had it, as the guidebook assured him, a beautiful town hall? After having declared eagerly that she well knew Uchtemuchti, Joanna discovered that she could tell Carl nothing definite about it. It lay little more than five miles from Duntavi, so that she had been there many a time. She remembered the horse shows there, the crowded country races her father had enjoyed in spite of his principles, the great July fair, where as children they had crunched bright pink sugar hearts and wondered if they would be kidnapped by gypsies. 
But as to the size of the town, its situation, its architecture, as to anything indeed which might have been of use to Carl and Lawrence, she was so ignorant that she began to wonder if, in reality, she had ever been there at all. She was all the more anxious to go to Duntavi, to make sure beyond a doubt whether a certain white-washed house and red-tiled steading had once stood in a fold of moorland. But in the middle of her talk of Duntavi, she became aware that Carl was looking at her with a thoughtfulness not caused by her words. Meet us at Uchtamachti tomorrow, he said, as she faltered into silence. See your Duntavi, if you must. Look your fill. I see you have to go. But get your memories over and be done with them. Stay the night at your village, and in the morning, walk across and join us. We shall wait for you. Here is the name of our inn. But you'll probably find me sketching the town hall and Lawrence looking for Roman rubbish. He watched her closely. I told my aunt that I should be back in time for dinner tonight. Oh, la la, the aunt, laughed Carl. You sent her a telegram. Do you think I should? But truly, Carl, her whole being seemed arrested waiting for his answer. I have suggested it, perhaps wrongly. The matter is one you must decide for yourself, Carl replied after a moment. But I cannot decide anything these days. You must help me, Carl. Do, please, help me, she begged him most earnestly. Are you a free woman? At his so abrupt question, a very billow of blood swept over her from head to foot, but she raised her suffused eyes and faced him bravely. Yes, she said. I'm free, quite, quite free. But I know nothing, and I am so weak. I know nothing, nothing. I can't tell what I should do. I'm blown by any wind. There seems no life in me. Carl took her shaking hand and patted it kindly. Go send the telegram, he bade her, as if it were a child he spoke to. I'm heartily glad of what you tell me more glad than I can say. Go send the telegram. I will meet you at the train. It seems we go so far together. Joanna lost no time, but she was not flurried. In spite of her grave face, her steps to the telegraph office were set almost to a dancing rhythm. Dear Carl, good dear Carl, what had she ever done to deserve such a friend? A slight but not a painful constraint arose between them upon the short journey. They had the musty compartment of the little puffing train to themselves, and she was hoping that Carl would tell her more of Lawrence and his illness. Nothing, however, seemed farther from Carl's intention, nor could she bring herself to question him till the moment of parting was almost upon them. Instead, therefore, they spoke of Joanna's work in London, of changes in Glasgow, of Feemy's expected visit home that October. Yet Joanna was happier than she knew and as the train came nearer and nearer to Duntavi, she grew eager in pointing out each well-remembered landmark. There was the tower, which some people said had not been built by the Picts. There the church. There the queer pointed hill that wore its fir woods as though they were a cloak and a plume of feathers, so that she had always thought it looked like a highway robber. Every moment established her belief that Duntavi was a real place after all and her companion's praise of the countryside gave her keen joy. These were hills and woods and rivers that she herself would never be able to see with the painter's eye, 
but she was lovely proud to have their beauty vindicated by one who could. They were jogging slowly into the station, which seemed even smaller than her memory of it, when at last she turned from the window and spoke with timid haste. Carl had said Lawrence had been ill. Did he mean that he had been seriously ill? Carl replied with a certain dryness that this was precisely what he had meant. Lawrence, he said, had quite unexpectedly turned up at his studio in Glasgow. Early one morning in June it was, straight from a night journey. He was then suffering from a chill, which was bad enough to account for the sharp illness that had followed. But what had made Carl more anxious was the wretched slowness of the convalescence. There had been one unaccountable relapse after another. The whole thing, a regular break in health rather than any specific illness. In his last letter, however, Lawrence had declared himself fit for the footing tour. This sunshine, if only it would last, and really today it looked like it, should help to set him up. There was no time for more. A warm grip of Carl's hand, a glance, grave and trustful on her part, smiling and kindly on his, a renewal of her promise to meet them without fail the next day, and Joanna was alone. She watched the tail of the train carrying Carl off till it disappeared at leisure round a distant hill corner. Then crossing the rails by the footboard, she walked up the lane, past the round tower where an iron ring for the necks of felons was still fixed at a height for misery in the stones, and so on into the village. End of section 31